This is week two of our sermon series on the minor prophets. We're actually going to be looking at four of the 12 minor prophets found at the end of the Old Testament. There are major prophets and minor prophets found in our Bibles, and they're not divided up this way based on importance. Rather, they're divided up this way based on length. The minor prophets are simply a smaller body of, of text, and so they're called minor prophets. We began last week by looking at the prophet Habakkuk, and this week we're going to be looking at the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It only consists of one chapter. Now, there are five books throughout the whole Bible that consist of one chapter. Obadiah is the only one in the Old Testament. The other four are found in the New Testament. But like last week, not much is known about this prophet. The only thing we know about Obadiah the prophet is what we find that he has written and recorded in the pages of Scripture. But Obadiah was a prophet who God gave a specific message to for a specific nation. But even though that message was for a specific nation, the overall message speaks to all nations throughout all history, even to us today. Now the nation that God had a message for from Obadiah is the nation of Edom. Now I'm sure many of you have probably never even heard that word before. The people of Edom were descendants of Esau, and that's where our story picks up today. Esau was the older twin brother of Jacob. Now, these twins were born to Isaac and Rebekah. Mark just preached a a sermon about this couple a few weeks ago in his Great Romances of the Bible series, Isaac and Rebekah. They had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Now, these two brothers were opposites in everything, and they couldn't get along. Now, you can't imagine that, can you? Two brothers getting along, not getting along. But they couldn't get along from the very beginning of their existence, even fighting over for space in their mother's womb. They just couldn't get along. Now, like I said, Esau was the older brother. And when he was born, the Bible says that his skin was red, and he was very hairy. And that's how the Bible describes him. Jacob came right after him, and it says that that as he came out of his mother's womb, he had a hold of Esau's heel. Now these boys grew up, and they they became interested in very different things. Esau was an outdoorsman. He was kind of a man's man. He enjoyed hunting, the thrill of the hunt. And his father loved him because of that. Now Jacob didn't like to do those things. He liked to stay back and stay around the house and do things with his mother. He was kind of a mama's boy. The Bible even tells us that the father loved Esau, and their mother loved Jacob, and this created a rivalry between the two. Even the slightest little disagreement, I'm sure, turned into something major. And this isn't a friendly rivalry like we think of in sports today. This is an angry, bitter rivalry. Here are some of the the stories that we know about these two and this rivalry, why they didn't get along. One time, Esau had been out hunting, and he came back, and he was extremely hungry. In our family, we use the word hangry. That's when you're so hungry, you're angry, and you just mash those words together so you're hangry. That's Esau. He thinks he's going to die. 
he's that hungry. Now, if you have kids or grandkids, you know that occasionally they get so hungry they think they're going to die. I'm starving. I'm not going to make it. This is Esau in this moment. And he comes in from the hunt, and Jacob had been there cooking, and he has this stew on the stove, and Esau goes, please give me some of that stew. And Jacob goes, I'll give you some, but I'm not going to just give it to you. I need something in return. It's whatever you ask. And Jacob says, okay, give me your birthright. Now to us, a birthright, we don't really know what that is, but we know that this is not a good deal. (laughs) A birthright for a bowl of soup. Now, a birthright in this case is probably some sort of privilege or possession that's given to the firstborn son. Maybe it's a bigger inheritance. It's probably worth a lot of money. If it's not worth a lot of money, it's worth a lot of pride and a lot of um, privilege and that sort of thing. This trade just doesn't seem fair. But Esau agreed to it. The Bible says that Esau thought to himself, what good is my birthright to me if I'm dead anyway? And so he agrees to give his brother Jacob his birthright. And of course, once that hunger is satisfied, he realized what had happened. And those feelings turn to anger and to rage. And it's all directed toward his brother Jacob. And this isn't the only major issue in their relationship. Their their father Isaac When he was getting old and was about to die, he decided he needed to give his oldest son the blessing, the family blessing. And so he he brings Esau in and he says, Esau, go out and hunt for me and, and cook me some of that good food and bring it to me. And when you bring that food to me, I will lay my hand on you and I will give you your blessing. So Esau, I'm sure, is pumped. This is a big deal. And he goes out for the hunt. But Rebecca overheard that conversation. She goes to Jacob and says, hey, Jacob, come with me. Your father's about to give your brother the blessing, but we're going to trick him. We're going to make him think that you are Esau so that you get that blessing. And yes, there's trickery involved here, and there's deception involved here, and it doesn't quite sit right with us, but this is what they do. Like I said, the whole idea of birthrights and blessings, they don't make sense to us in our culture, but this was common practice in ancient times, and it is a big deal. And so, Rebecca and Jacob tricked their father into giving Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. Now remember, Isaac is very old, and he can't see. He probably had one of those cataracts like I had and couldn't see couldn't see who he was, but they tricked him, and Jacob got the blessing. And Esau comes back from the hunt, and he brings his father the food that he asked for, and he's all hyped up, ready to receive this blessing, and Isaac says, oh, Jacob just got your blessing. Imagine how that would make you feel. I'm guessing extreme rage. And Esau couldn't get over it and vowed to kill his brother Jacob as soon as their father died. And it's this struggle between Jacob and Esau that brings us to our text today in Obadiah. The Bible says that God loved Jacob, and he he chose Jacob to be his people. 
did not feel the same way toward Esau. The Bible actually says that God hated Esau. And we can't really wrap our heads around that. We don't fully understand that. But Esau would not be the one who God would establish as his people. Esau would become a nation, the nation of Edom, the nation that Obadiah has a message for. But as far as God is concerned, they would be on the outside. And so we have these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, that become two nations, Edom and Israel. And they have this long history of bad blood and animosity toward each other. Hundreds of years even go by, and this bad blood is passed on from generation to generation. As God rescued his people, Israel, that came from Jacob, he rescued them from Egypt out of slavery, and he was leading them to the promised land. Edom would not let them pass through their territory to get to the promised land. This is hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau lived. And so this bad blood you could see was passed on from generation to generation. Now there would be times of peace for these two nations, but there was always this undertow of animosity. Now Edom wasn't a very big nation, but it did have a lot of advantages. Its cities were positioned high in the mountains, just south, southeast of the Dead Sea. Their cities would, would, would only be accessed by these little caverns and little ravines and little um, passageways. Their cities were well fortified. Their capital was among the mountains and said to have only one way in and one way out, kind of like Poinciana, right? <laughs> you know, if something happens on that bridge, no one's getting in or out, right? I guess times have changed since the new toll road, but um, Edom was set up that way, where their cities only had one way in and one way out. And so they would go out and they would raid the villages, they would raid other countries, and they'd retreat to their cities, their fortified cities, and they could easily defend themselves. It's because of their location being south of the Dead Sea and east of the Red Sea that a major trade route went through their territory, and this created much wealth for this small nation. And it's because of these factors, because they were well fortified and because they were wealthy, that they were able to become allies with the surrounding nations. You see, this little, this little nation had a lot going for them. But one of Edom's biggest issues was pride. Pride is Edom's sin. They had this inflated picture of themselves. They've created this false image of themselves. They thought they had made it in the world. They thought they were something, but in God's eyes, they were nothing. See, pride is a big deal to God. It's one of the sins that God hates the most. Pride to us maybe not be that big a deal. <laughs> Pride to us is one of those acceptable sins that we actually admit that we struggle with. We know it's a sin, we know it's wrong, but it's one of those sins that we can talk about openly. And, and we kind of give people a pass if they say they have pride. If you've ever been in a small group or an accountability group or, or a small gathering where people are going around and sharing maybe a sin that they struggle with, Pride is the safe sin to mention. It's much easier to say you struggle with pride instead of saying that you are addicted to pornography. It's much easier to say that you struggle with pride 
instead of saying that you're sleeping with your coworker. It's much easier to admit pride as advice instead of saying that you have rage you cannot control and it leads to abuse in your family. It's easier to admit the struggle of pride than it is to admit that you're a kleptomaniac and you can't keep your hands off things and take in other people's stuff. You see, it's a safe sin to admit. And, and because of that, we kind of take it lightly and we say, oh, yeah, he's, he's a good person. He just, he just deals with pride. I mean, we'd never say that about any, any other sin, right? Oh, he's a good person, but he just kills people. <laughs> it's a safe sin to admit. It's acceptable. I mean, which sounds worse? I have pride or I'm adulterer. I have pride in my heart or I'm a liar. I mean, that even, it just, it doesn't sound right to us. You can tell the difference just by hearing that sentence. Pride kind of gets a pass. It doesn't seem to be that serious of an offense. But pride doesn't get a pass with God. It's offensive to him, and he will deal with that sin. It's offensive, it's serious. And maybe we need to stop taking it so lightly. Edom struggled with pride. They, they became so self-reliant that they didn't need the God of Jacob. We can do this on our own. Look at us. Our cities are high in the mountains. Who could ever overcome us? We are wealthy. We don't have any needs. All our needs are met. And how did we get that wealth? We created it ourselves. Look at these relationships we have with our surrounding nations. They will come to our aid. They will stand by our side in our time of need. We don't need any help from God. And what about wisdom? We have that too. Our wise men are some of the wisest around. We don't need advice from God. And if for some reason we go into battle, we have the mightiest warriors who will defend us and who will protect us. You see, they didn't think they needed God. They were self-reliant. They can take care of themselves. And this is what pride does. It makes us think that we can handle it on our own. We don't need God's help. Obadiah 1.3 says this, You have been deceived by your own pride. You see, pride is, it deceives us. When you think you have gotten to where you are today, all on your own efforts, without God, that's pride. When you think that you can overcome sin in your life just by willpower, that's pride. When you go day after day without praying, you're actually communicating to God that you know you can handle your day without Him. That's pride too. And I don't know about you, but this is very convicting to me. How many days do I wake up and I begin the day on my own ambition without asking God's help? How many times have I tried to overcome sin in my life simply just by my own willpower? How many times have I stepped back at a big accomplishment and thought to myself, look what I did. I'm amazing. How could this have happened without me? And yes, I have had these thoughts before, and it's straight up pride, and it's offensive to God. I'm going to be 
transparent with you this morning and share a matter of prayer in my life, and I ask for you to pray with me on this. As we enter into this last year of Mark's ministry here at PCC, and we begin to transition, and I begin to transition into more leadership roles here at the church, I ask that you pray for us as a church. Pray for me. Pray for Mark. Pray for our elders and our other staff members. Pray that pride doesn't creep into my life because it very easily could. Please pray for our leaders that they are humble and they recognize the greatness of God's provision for this church. Pray that we don't become like Edom and we begin to think that, wow, we did this on our own. Please, I'm asking you to pray. Join me in praying for these things. You see, Edom was a prideful nation and their pride was offensive to God. And God says, you think you're safe among the clouds? I will bring you down. You, you think you have wealth, but when I'm done with you, you will have nothing. You think your allies have your back? When you see them coming and you think they're coming to stand by your side, you don't realize they're coming to push you out of your territory. Your wise men, I will destroy them. Your mighty warriors, they will tremble in fear. You see, God is going to deal with their pride. and He's going to destroy them. God can, and he will deal with any pride. And it doesn't matter if it's on a personal level, on an organizational level, or even on a national level. He can take the mightiest person, the mightiest organization, and even the mightiest nation and bring it to his knees in a matter of an instant. He can take that which is most prideful and humble it in a matter of a second. And you don't want to be that person. I promise you. See, pride is Edom's sin. And that's what Obadiah is talking about in this chapter in the Minor Prophets. But pride isn't the only reason why God is going to destroy Edom. He is also holding them accountable for what they did while Israel, their brother, was invaded and pillaged. Look at the charges against Edom found in Obadiah 1 verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. And you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should have not gloated when they exiled your relatives to a distant land. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered with misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they suffered, were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads, killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over to the terrible time of trouble. You see, Israel was under attack, and Edom just stood by and watched. And they actually enjoyed what they were seeing. They cheered. They were happy to see their relatives being destroyed. 
Israel was being destroyed and their people were being carried off. And Edom refused to help in their time of need. They stood by and watched. And they were happy to see these things happen. And it all goes back to Jacob and Esau. And that bad blood between brothers. And God even points that out in verse 10. It says, because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, that's referring to those brothers, those close relatives. But not only did they watch, they began to participate. They went in and looted right alongside the enemy. They even participated in the carnage, killing those who were trying to escape. They captured others and handed them over to their enemy. Instead of coming to their brother's aid, they rejoiced in their time of suffering and even joined in themselves. And this is why God says the things he says in Obadiah. And this is exactly what happened to Edom. They were destroyed. They are gone, wiped out. We don't hear about them today. You hear about them from time to time as you read through the Old Testament. But by the time Jesus came and by the time Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, you no longer hear of them. Their land is now what we call Jordan. Edom will be destroyed. But there's hope for God's people. Look at the next couple verses. Obadiah 1, 17 and 18. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel... That's Jacob. They will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire, and Edom a field of dried stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors of Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Edom will be destroyed, but there is hope for God's people. God will restore his people. They will reclaim their inheritance. And the very last sentence of the book, the very last sentence of the book says this in Obadiah 121, and the Lord himself will be king. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the overall picture of what is taking place? God's enemies are being destroyed. God's people are being vindicated. And the Lord himself is on the throne. What a picture, right? This is the message of Obadiah. And like I said at the beginning of the sermon, this message is for a specific nation, Edom. But that message rings out for all nations throughout all history. It rings out to us today. The picture we see in Obadiah is an overarching theme of God's ultimate plan. Obadiah's prophecy concerning Edom paints this picture for us. God's ultimate plan. God's enemies are destroyed. God's people are vindicated. And Jesus sits on his throne. The prophet gives us a glimpse of God's ultimate judgment here on earth. And the hope that these words brought Israel back in the day of Edom and and Jacob and Esau, the hope that these words brought them should bring us hope. We may find ourselves in a time of despair. We may find ourselves in a time of need. We may find ourselves being persecuted. We may find ourselves facing some sort of injustice. But don't lose hope. Because there is a day coming when God will turn things around. There is a day coming when he will make things right. There is a day coming when his enemies will be destroyed and his people are vindicated and Jesus will rule for all time. 
it's exciting. <laughs> Let me close with just a couple of scriptures this morning. The first is found in Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. An angel visits a young virgin named Mary and says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. In Revelation 11.15 says this, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. We have a king who sits upon his throne and he rules justly. And he will never be overtaken. He will never be defeated. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Please stand and pray with me. Oh, Father, you are so great. And you are so worthy and you are so mighty. We thank you, God, for establishing a kingdom that will reign forever. And thank you for accepting us to be a part of that kingdom. Thank you for Jesus and for his sacrificing, uh, sacrifice on the cross and his sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be a part of your kingdom. Jesus, thank you. It's because of your great sacrifice that God exalted you to the highest place and gave you the name that is above every name. And that you're, at the sound of your name, at the sound of the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge, confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.